Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mette. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? Good. We have some big news to drop. Big, big changes coming to Useful Idiots. Yeah. So we always invite you, we offer you the chance to become Useful Idiots, by which we mean subscribers to Substack. And you should definitely subscribe, even if you just subscribe for free. That's good. But if you subscribe for $5 a month, you get exclusive content, you get extended interviews, but we're going to offer you even more perks, even more reasons to become members of the Useful Idiots clan, which you can do at usefulidiots.substack.com. So what are we offering you? Well, we are offering you a new exciting feature. It's called Useful Idiots Throwdown Thursdays our new mini episodes premiering each Thursday where you can get your exclusive dose of mid-week media madness. So we're gonna watch things like Jake Tapper interviewing Biden and other corporate tools looking like idiots. <laughs> because just doing it once on Monday morning is just not enough. There's not just, enough, yeah. There's too much media madness that we need there's, to make Yeah, there's of. too much media madness and it doesn't all happen on Sunday morning news shows, which is what we focus on on uh, Monday mornings. Exactly. So we're bringing you all the all the cable news media hits that we don't have time to address slash uh, happen on non-Sunday morning time. So you're welcome, everyone. So that's just another reason to become usefulidiots.subject.com, useful idiot heads. What else can they get, Aaron? You want to tell well, them about also, what else they get? We're launching something that Wilson has dubbed the Absurd Arena, which is the useful idiots discussion board for people who think you can talk back to a podcast and that's up at usefulidiots.substack.com where you share your opinions and ask us questions uh and every week we'll answer some of those questions right here on this show in fact so should we respond to two of them from this week let's do it yeah let's do yeah. it all right yeah wilson you want to read them to us so useful idiot cody asks we live with a level of propaganda that is not merely elevated it is mirror universe level if you were to try to draw a Venn diagram of the opposed positions on the Ukraine war, the second circle would complain and refuse to be drawn on the same piece of paper as the first one, and the drawer would find themselves ostracized as some sort of fascist circle supporter. I've been trying to think of ways we can frame a call for peace that is difficult for propagandists to counter. Is there another path that can produce peace? Hmm. It is a very tough question because, yes, we are living in a upside down world where those who call for peace are now ostracized and demonized and so it doesn't matter how sane you sound and how many facts you have on your side just because of the way the culture is right now where the only anti-war voices in like congress are those on the fringe right to most liberals any call for peace will just sound kooky and i don't know how to counter that uh, beyond just maintaining your composure, uh, remembering that like no matter how many people call you names or try to marginalize you for trying to call for some sanity in the Ukraine proxy war, that you know your position is grounded in a, in a belief in a better world and in wanting the world to survive this moment. And it's hard to do that when so many people who you know take sensible positions on other issues, like for example, the squad all support Medicare for all. And if you're if you're a progressive, you obviously support that too. So it's difficult when people who take sensible positions on other really important issues take such dangerous positions on this particular issue, which is, you know, one of global uh, importance because this conflict does threaten nuclear war. 
So just maintain your composure, keep your faith, and try to stay sane <laughs> in a very try insane to stay moment. Sane, yeah. I don't think I have anything to add to that. I'm just going to bravely co-sign everything that Aaron just said. Because what more can you say beyond we're heading toward a path of uh, increased danger and that war is bad and that we need peace. We need negotiations. We're we're supposed to be in favor of diplomacy if you're in a progressive space. That's what I thought progressives are all about. And so when that becomes verboten, right. it's just how do you respond to that? It's a great question. Yeah, it is a great question. And it's depressing. But, you know, I think that maybe... One of the ways you do that is you tune into this show. That's right. <laughs> that is that is one way. And you yeah. hear from people like we this week we have Medea Benjamin, who has been involved in the peace effort for a very, very long time and yeah. has seen, you know, moments of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people protesting against the Iraq war to the current moment where, you know, the anti-war position is very uh, fringe relatively. But just remember the history changes and it doesn't always stay uh, static as hopeless as it might seem right now. So keep your head up. All right. And for, we have a silly question this week because we don't want to just be depressing. So let's hear our silly question coming from David Watson. So David Watson, just as importantly asks, would you rather fight a hundred coordinated cats, think collective hive mind ant colony or one bear? Well, I am allergic to cats, which complicates it a little bit. <laughs> It'll give me, they could give me a runny nose very itchy eyes so of course the obvious answer would be it's easier to fight coordinated cats but the curveball for me is i don't know if i'd be debilitated by rubbing my eyes with my hands it's very hard for me not to do that my nose is running when i use my sleeve maybe pause to try to get a tissue and at that point become overpowered by the cats well i have a curveball too which is that i face the fact that i've never called publicly for a bear to be executed I have, on the other hand, though, called for a cat to be executed right. on this very show. If you remember, yeah, um, I was having an issue with my parents' cat, Lucy, who I thought was a demon and I thought was a threat to my parents. And so I did publicly advocate for Lucy to be put down, which uh, uh, I have to report she was earlier this right. year. So do these cats, if I were to fight them, would they know about my public stance? Oh. And would that fuel their need for revenge? So given the fear of, of that happening, I, I'll have to go with the bear. Who knew that both of us would choose a bear fight over a cat fight? Yeah. All right. Become useful idiots at usefulidiots.substack.com. So you can ask us these very thought-provoking questions, which provoke very surprising, unconventional answers. But again, it's not just for that. It's not just for the extended interviews. It's not just for the bonus content. It's also for the Throwdown Thursday, and this week we'll be reacting to Jake Tapper's interview with Sleepy Joe. That's right. And to see our Throwdown Thursday segment where we react to Joe Biden's interview with Jake Tapper, go to usefulidiots.substack.com. And now let's get to our regularly scheduled four food groups. Let's do it. What do we got for Democrats suck, Aaron? All right. Well, look, for Democrats suck, we're going to have to uh, talk about what is going on with progressives and Ukraine. And most people have seen this, but recently AOC was giving a community meeting, meeting with constituents when some protesters stood up and denounced her very angrily, very aggressively uh, for supporting the Ukraine proxy war, for voting for all these bills that have funded 
the Ukraine proxy war with billions of dollars in weapons. And so AOC was asked about uh, her response to those protesters, and she released a post uh, pretty much saying that these protesters were not leftists, that they were supporters of LaRouche, which is a fringe kind of culty movement. Which let's say that's true. I don't. I haven't looked into these protesters. They are, they are. one they of them are? at least has okay. has um, exonerate Larouche in his bio. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. No, so look, wears it on so, the sleeve to his credit. Yeah. Right. All right. So look, the Larouche movement is one I stay away from with a ten foot pole. But to me, the issue is not who these individuals are. The issue is the issue, which is the Ukraine proxy war and the dangers that it's fueling. And AOC responded to her her support of that by basically accusing these protesters. Uh, well, of saying this, this this is part of what she said. So AOC says the protesters, quote, were parroting pro-Putin talking points. It's not anti-war to support Russia's imperialist project to invade and seize neighboring countries either. Ukraine, like other nations, has the right to self-determination. The only person instigating threats of nuclear weapons is Putin, no one else. As far as their comments about Tulsi Gabbard, Gabbard has voted for more defense budget increases than I ever have. Zero. Look it up. Happy to dig more into Ukraine and other posts. Like I said, I don't care who these protests are individually. Uh, I personally want nothing to do with LaRouche, but that's not material to whether or not the point is correct that AOC has been funding a disastrous proxy war and funneling billions of dollars into the military industrial complex. That's just true no matter who these people are. And when she accuses them of parroting pro-Putin talking points, I mean, this is adopting the language of the neo-McCarthyites in the mainstream of the Democratic Party that she ran against, that her whole brand has been that she was the alternative to. And here she is parroting that. And that's sort of like, you know, that's a callback to the McCarthy area where where people were accused of parroting pro-communist talking points. It's the exact same thing. And also what's, what, what makes it even crazier to me is that this language has been used to sabotage AOC's wing of the party. And the best example of that came in 2020, when right before the Nevada caucuses, when Bernie was surging, he was on the upswing, all of a sudden we got these leaks from the intelligence community saying that Vladimir Putin was trying to support Bernie Sanders. And that was used to then make the case that Bernie Sanders is Putin's candidate and he's not right for America because that's what Russia wants. And of course, that leak was amplified a lot on MSNBC and CNN because of course they were gonna to try to use anything they could to sabotage a progressive candidate and prop up the centrist wing of the party. So here is now AOC, who's supposed to be the antidote to that brand of politics, that neoliberal politics, parroting that exact same kind of talking point. And that's why I have to say that on this issue, the squad sucks. They, they've they completely failed to follow through on what I, I think a main tenet of being progressive, which is being anti-war. And not only that, they're now propping up the talking points of people who are pro-war. Yeah, I'm conflicted on this. I've gone back and forth on this. I probably commented on this more than I should have because um, I'm torn. LaRouche is a cult. I'm going to say the LaRouche, LaRoucheites are cultists. Yeah. I still think that what he said is correct. Now, maybe he has ulterior motives and is trying to do something. I don't I don't know. But the point is, like, if we're just judging the actual protest and the intervention and whether he was right and whether it was effective, 
they've been kind of tainted by people, understandably, because they want to shoot the messenger and distract from the message. Now, what would be very destructive is if we, because this guy, these guys did this, and we agreed with them on this, if we then became LaRoucheites, that would be problematic. <laughs> yes, it but would. But we're not. You know what I mean? So yeah, sure. it is an interesting question of how we judge this. And then there's a whole question of how you judge the effectiveness of a protest, which I think is a fair question. I got a lot of pushback for that. I was accused of being privileged and PMC and not engaging in protests, which I'm not. But that doesn't mean that the question of of effectiveness of protest shouldn't be looked at. And I think people also conflate the justifiability of a protest with the effectiveness of a protest. So I understand people are angry and this is a really serious issue. That doesn't mean that particular tactics necessarily work or don't work, but I'm not, I'm that's separate from what I think about them. I don't know. I'm yeah. just, you know, just like listening to the video, I was a bit kind of, uh, I don't know, you know, they were aggressive and it's a bit uncomfortable when someone's that aggressive right. and refusing to let others speak. You know, I get that. But the fact the problem is, look, people are also frustrated that lawmakers like AOC who brand themselves are as progressives are voting in lockstep, not just with Adam Schiff and Chuck Schumer right. and Nancy Pelosi, but with Lindsey Graham and Liz Cheney and Mike Pompeo to give billions of dollars to the weapons industry uh, for the war in Ukraine. And that's why, by the way, it's disingenuous when she says that Tulsi Gabbard's voted for more defense budget increases than I have. Okay, well, good. Good for you for not voting for the Pentagon increases. But when it comes to giving tens of billions of dollars to Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and others to help them generate rec record profits as they're posting now in Ukraine, you have voted for that. So those are actually a budget increase when it comes to the coffers of the military industrial complex. So it's disingenuous, I think, to pretend otherwise. And look, again, on the question of who these people are, yeah, I don't want anything to do with the LaRouche movement. But to me, this isn't about who these people are. It's about what the issue is. And, yeah. you know, at this, like, just as, just because AOCs voted to arm neo-Nazis and voted to fuel the threat of nuclear war, I'm not going to abandon Medicare for all just because she also supports Medicare right. for all. I mean, the, the fact is sometimes people will have positions that we agree with, even if they come from a different movement. And I'm just right. not going to uh, make this about these people's individual affiliations when we're talking about something, something very, very serious, which is a Ukraine proxy war and right. the refusal by the Biden administration to engage in negotiations. And that's the part that I find, I think, most frustrating with this response from AOC. She doesn't mention at all that the Biden administration has not uh, embrace diplomacy. And in fact, there are many reports saying it's canceled diplomacy. Does she have any criticism of that at all? And there's none here. And there's none so far at all that I've heard from any members of the squad or Bernie Sanders. Right. I mean, moving forward, if I'm a LaRoucheite, maybe I don't put exonerate LaRouche in my Twitter bio because it'll be a lot harder for me to be uh, dismissed. Well, you know, that's that that's their call. And they uh, obviously yeah. feel very strongly about exonerating LaRouche. Yeah. For whatever reason but again i just don't want to make it about yeah them. i know a, a, right. a fringe movement and in fact the question should be asked why are only people on the fringe confronting progressive lawmakers about right. funding a neocon proxy war right that's the question to yeah me. the question for me is how it lands so you and i could think it's aggressive i think the question is well there are lots of different questions one is what is the point of this one of it one point is to just get this out there right into the news. And then the question becomes, does AOC look symp more sympathetic or less sympathetic? And that's another thing that you have to evaluate. 
but maybe even if she looks sympathetic and they look like bullies, and I'm not saying that's true, but let's say let's say that that is the case. Does it still succeed by getting this conversation out there? Well, that's a good question. And it certainly did. It's gotten a lot of attention. Right. Because it's the only look when these uh, progressive lawmakers go on friendly news outlets, they never get asked about this. I think Brianna Joy Gray questioned Rokana uh, pretty skeptically about his support for the Ukraine proxy war. That to me is the only example I can think of where a progressive lawmaker, a self-identified progressive lawmaker has been challenged. And so that builds frustration and it means anger is going to come out in moments like this. And yes, it did get it out there. So even if we're uncomfortable with how it sounds, how it looks, it did get attention. And this is a very vital issue. Now, if it got it out there, but they looked like total assholes and she looked really sympathetic and they looked like their talking points were incoherent, then it would be a fail. But I don't know if that's true. And I don't they're think talking, their talking points looked incoherent. Yeah, no, they weren't. She was. They pointed out that she's fueling the threat of nuclear war. It's true. They're pointing out that she's voting to arm neo-Nazis. And they're pointing out that on this issue, Tulsi Gabbard's shown more courage than she yeah. has. I think that's also right. true. That doesn't mean that, you know people who don't agree with Tulsi's views on other matters, have to accept Tulsi as being right on everything. And as we've talked about, Tulsi says many things I find very objectionable. But it just means on this issue, that the one we're talking about, uh, I think they have a great point. I think that's why AOC had to resort to the familiar smear tactic, which we usually get from neocons of just accusing them of spreading pro-Putin talking points. That's a pretty good sign, I think, that she doesn't actually have a substantive way to defend her position. Right. And also saying that they're not even on the left, which, okay, they're not. Let's say they're not. How does that change it? Yeah, but also it's like, who is someone who is voting with neocons to say that these people aren't yeah, on the left? Yeah. So is 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 being in lockstep with Lindsey Graham on the most dangerous conflict in the world? Is that leftist now? Yeah. Well, and that's why Democrats suck. For Republicans suck, let's head down to Florida and see what Marco Rubio had to say about Russia during his debate with Val Demings for Senate weapons are starting World War III, but there needs to be one. I would argue to you tonight that they've already attacked NATO because the Nord Stream pipeline underwater that supplies Germany from Russia has been bombed. It was bombed, and everyone's wondering. I saw a news report. Well, they're saying Russia may have done it. Well, who else did it? Luxembourg, Belgium? Senator, can you wrap this up in 10 seconds? I need to move on. So there you have it. Marco Rubio, Sherlock Holmes, figuring out what happened, cracking the case. I mean, he is from Florida. It is on the water, so he has extensive maritime experience. So I'm sure based on that, he could uh, deduce that really it was Russia bombing its own uh, multi-billion dollar gas pipeline and its main form of leverage over the rest of Europe. Yeah, he's got that aquatic expertise. Mm -hmm. He cracked the case. What do we got for Isn't That Weird? For Isn't That Weird, uh, we're going to stay on Ukraine. (laughs) Who could have thunk it? Yeah, sorry, everybody. Be Be so predictable, but... Listen to this revelation. This is uh, a guy named Dan Rice, who is an American Army veteran who is now acting as an advisor, a special advisor to the commander of the Ukrainian armed forces. And this is what he said on CNN about what he perceives Russia's goals to be inside of Ukraine. But they're attacking the cities, trying to attack the, the, the grid, making it a very difficult winner. They're trying to, in my opinion, trying to get to the negotiating table to try to go back to the 2014 lines. Ukraine won't have it. Ukraine wants all of their land back, back to the 91 lines. They really need air defense systems. They need aircraft. So did you catch that? The, this advisor to Ukraine's army is saying that what Russia wants is not, as we're conventionally told, to conquer all of Ukraine, 
But he says, quote, to get back to the negotiating table. Okay, that's what he says Russia's goal is. And he says what Russia what Russia wants is the 2014 lines, the lines of the border. And what that means is that Russia would keep Crimea and the uh, rebels that Russia supports would keep the parts of the Donbass that broke away from Ukraine in 2014 after a U.S.-backed coup. And that, to me, is just a pretty striking admission because, you know, we're told constantly that Russia wants to take over all of Ukraine and then move on to the rest of Europe. Here's actually a top advisor, an American advisor, to the commander of Ukraine's military saying that Russia just actually wants to get back to the negotiating table. And then he says that Ukraine doesn't want that, won't have it, because Ukraine wants all of their land back to the 91 lines. What that means is that Ukraine also wants to retake Crimea. And Crimea is the land that Russia annexed in 2014 after the U.S.-backed coup. The vast majority of the population in Crimea wants to be a part of Russia. That's what all polls show. They've tried before to separate from Ukraine. And he's saying that Ukraine won't settle for anything less than taking Crimea back, which is just a recipe for more disaster because Russia is never going to give up Crimea because it's home to its, not just a population that that wants to be a part of Russia, but also is home to its most important naval base in the Black Sea. So I thought that was a pretty uh, weird admission from this uh, Ukrainian advisor. Right. Isn't that weirdly honest? Yes. And what do we have for Isn't That Terrible? For Isn't That Terrible, we have a story. The headline of which reads, Carjackers interrupt couple having sex, leaving them naked in the streets. This kinky (laughs) carjacking could have stopped traffic. Security video shows the shocking moment an amorous couple having sex in their sedan were busted by three thieves. Trio violently pry open three of the car's doors in an attempt to jump in and make a quick getaway, but are startled by the not-so-autoerotic activities going on inside. I don't know why they're saying not-so-autoerotic. Uh, the lusty lovers were completely naked, splayed out across the backseat, and partway through their steamy sex session. However, the Breeze and Carjackers didn't let romance thwart their thievery, with one of the robbers pulling the pair out of the car and pushing them onto the road. They cover up their private parts, but you can see they're left standing um, naked. But, you know, the thieves do throw their clothing into the road. I can't think of a worse situation in which to be carjacked. I mean, they carjacks can end worse. They were able to keep their lives and their clothes. Yes. I guess that's the, the But in terms lining. of, you know, I'm just saying if I was going to be carjacked, I'd rather be fully clothed right. and not engage in intercourse. Right. Uh, Definitely. If it has to go down like that. I want all my clothing on uh, when I'm being kicked out of my own vehicle. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Agree. Yeah. So dry humping is preferable. If you're going to have to be engaged in some kind of activity, make sure it's dry humping. Yeah. That sounds like a dry humping cars. Yeah. That sounds like a really important uh, PSA. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Let's get a campaign going, Katie. Yeah. Dry Dry humping your your vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. Dry humping your vehicles, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. We are so excited to be talking to Medea Benjamin, a co-founder of Code Pink. She's the author of several books, including most recently, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, which she wrote with Nicholas J.S. Davies. And we can guarantee you that this is the first interview ever about the Ukraine proxy war that has segued from a discussion of dry humping. So let's hit it. Historic moment. Let's hit it, so to speak. (laughs) Let's hit it with your clothes on. We 
we're so excited to be talking to Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. She's also the co-author of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless War. That's her most recent book. Welcome, Medea. Hey, wonderful to be on with you, Katie and Aaron. Thanks. So what made you write this book and how did you do it uh, in such a short time? I had been writing with my co-author, Nicholas Davies, about the issues of Ukraine leading up to the war. I must admit that we did not predict this. In fact, we had written a piece about the likely scenarios and the one of a Russian invasion was the least likely scenario. But we had been covering this issue. And when the Russians invaded, uh, we were heartbroken. We were devastated. I have uh, family. My grandparents are from our our Jewish Russian speaking from Ukraine. Uh, When I saw the devastation, the millions of people fleeing, the destruction of their residences, the uh, the people burying their daughters, their fathers, their sons. Um, it was heartbreaking. And I think as an anti-war activist, I wanted to try to put this in perspective. And Nicholas Davies and I were approached by OR Books to write this and were given two months. So we put everything else aside and just did a um, basic primer that gives people the elements of this, not to excuse the Russian invasion, in fact, to talk very, uh, very, uh, in a, a very condemning kind of way about what Russia did, but put it in the context and also try to understand what were the other repercussions that we were going to see from this war. And I think we laid it out quite uh, correctly in the book because Uh, Even though it's now been two months since the book was finished, um, what we had talked about has certainly come to pass. And what do you think the most important revelation or analysis or part of your book is for people who haven't read it? Well, I think it's a fascinating story about what was the U.S. involvement in the 2014 coup and laying it out step by step in what we hope is a very objective way. And I think that story is one that is important for people to read and understand. We also have a chapter on NATO because it's so important to counter the narrative of NATO being this defensive alliance. And so not only do we uh, give a blow by blow of the expansion of NATO and talk about some of the most important politicians, academics, analysts, people in the U.S. government who predicted this war, uh, but also talk about what has happened to NATO since its evolution from a supposedly defensive protection of Western Europe to this very dangerous, largest military alliance that has ever existed and how it has been so offensive when it comes to the bombing of Kosovo, to the uh, involvement in the invasion of uh, Afghanistan, of Libya, how it came after the U.S. invasion of Iraq to support that invasion. So I think giving people an understanding of the context and in a in a quite detailed but not overwhelming way is what we tried to do in the book. It's a great read, by the way. It's very accessible and um, full of really in, important information. And 
you guys distill the role of not just the UK, but the United States in sabotaging uh, a peace agreement. Can you just tell people about that? Yes, I think among progressives, this story is starting to get out about how there was such a great possibility after the war began to find a negotiated solution with Turkey taking the lead in the negotiations and the mediation and the Russians coming forward with a plan that was looked favorably upon by Zelensky. And in fact, he was talking at that time at the need to uh, make to recognize that Ukraine was going to be a neutral state, that this dream they had of joining NATO was just not going to happen. And then how Prime Minister Boris Johnson met with Zelensky and talked about how the collective West did not want to negotiate with Russia, how this was uh, the the West was going to keep support uh, Ukraine in its fight against Russia, and that the message from Secretary of Defense Austin from the U.S. was a similar one with this call to weaken NATO and how uh, weaken we um, Russia, and how after that uh, the talks basically were cut off, and the position of Zelensky has changed so dramatically to being now one of calling for a fast track of NATO and to calling for recovering every inch of land that had been, quote, taken by the Russians since 2014. So uh, there are some people who say, well, it's not true. You don't have proof of that. But uh, Aaron, as you know, this was reported in a very uh, well-respected Ukrainian newspaper. And there are many others who have since come forward to talk about this. And when people say to me, well, it isn't true the, uh, that the U.S. has uh, torpedoed these negotiations, I say, well, give me an example of the U.S. calling for negotiations or the U.S. actually uh, doing something about it. Give me an example of Joe Biden picking up the phone and calling Putin or the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who might as well be in the Pentagon instead of in the State Department because he doesn't do anything when it comes to negotiations. Uh, why isn't he picking up the phone on a regular basis and call, talking to his counterpart in Russia? So obviously, uh, the U.S. has, has said openly uh, they're not interested in negotiations. You know, Medea, Blinken is so devoted to arms uh, procurement that he's been going on a global tour not to promote diplomacy, but actually to procure weapons for Ukraine, because Ukraine needs specific kinds of weapons that come from the Soviet era, because that's what the majority of their forces are trained in. So Blinken, not only is he not negotiating, he's literally acting as an arms dealer, visiting all these countries to kind of try to get them to give up uh, weapons. And yes, as you say, no calls at all for negotiations from the Biden administration, which is a huge tell, as is the fact that it's not just this one report in Ukrainian media, which came from sources close to Zelensky, that said that Boris Johnson told Zelensky not to negotiate. But Vladimir Putin recently made the allegation directly that the U.S. wrecked these peace talks. There was no direct U.S. denial. I tried to get a direct response from the from various U.S. government branches and did not get any direct denials. And also Fiona Hill, the former White House expert, wrote in Foreign Affairs that U.S. officials knew that there was the outline of a peace agreement reached between Russia and Ukraine. So the evidence pointing to what you're talking about is pretty overwhelming. So as well as people from the Turkey, Turkish negotiations, right? Well, they're the ones that are quoted in that uh, Ukrainian source. Yes. Right. 
So you've been trying to, you know, bring this cause for peace to Capitol Hill. What has been the response you've gotten from lawmakers uh, in trying to push them to encourage negotiations? I have been flabbergasted about the response in Capitol Hill. As you know, and hopefully many of your viewers recall the $40 billion package that went to Ukraine where there was not one Barbara Lee, not one member of the squad, not one Democrat who voted against it, yet there were 57 Republicans on the House side and 11 senators. And we have been going and meeting as many people as we can. I think it's important for people to recognize that since COVID and January 6th uprising, you can't just walk into Congress anymore. It used to be the doors were open. That was something quite wonderful about Congress, that not only were the doors to the buildings open, but the doors to every office was open. And that's not the case anymore. You need to have a meeting beforehand. You need to be escorted into the building and into the offices. So it is harder to meet with representatives these days, but people still have to find ways to do it. And when we have been going with, uh, oftentimes with people who come in from far away to meet with their representatives because they're not able to meet with them in their home offices, we have found that we're hitting a brick wall. I want to give you one example that happened to me just a couple of days ago when there was a a wonderful man from Maine who came 700 miles by train and bus and spent $700 of his own money to stay in Washington, D.C. to have meetings with his representative. And the first one I went with him was Representative Golden, who is a Democrat. And the aide that we met with, well, first, the one who escorted us into the building was a Pentagon fellow, and there are people from the Pentagon embedded in offices throughout Congress for a year on the taxpayer's dime to learn how the system works and to influence the system while they're there. The legislative director that we met with was also from the military, and the congressperson had done his tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when this constituent said, uh, I came here I'm a poor man, I'm a retired social worker, but this is so important for me because I'm afraid of nuclear war. And my neighbors where I live in a small town in Maine are all having a hard time deciding if they can pay for their grocery bills or their energy bills. I thought it was in incredibly important to come and talk to you about the need to find a solution to this war and not keep it giving billions of our tax dollars. That's not what we voted you in here for. And the response we got was, I hate to disappoint you and I want to be frank with you, but our representative actually not only is in favor of the weapons that have been going, but thinks we should be sending more weapons. And let me tell you, that's typical of what we're hearing from Democrats as well as most Republicans, except for Republicans that some would characterize as extreme right. And they tend to have the most rational position right now when it comes to calling for negotiations. Well, look, speaking of which, let's go to a clip of, uh, you know, the standard bearer for the extreme right, and that is Donald Trump, but yet sounding reasonable on this issue. He recently spoke at a rally where he called for peace and warned about the dangers of nuclear war. We must demand the immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine, or we will end up in World War III and there will be nothing left of our planet all because stupid people 
didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. They don't understand. They really don't understand. I rebuilt our military. I rebuilt our nuclear power. They don't understand what they're dealing with, the power of nuclear. They have. Now, Medea, as you put out in your book, Trump has major responsibility for this current crisis in that he did policies like tearing up the INF Treaty, which radically escalated tensions with Russia and made the world a much more dangerous place because the INF Treaty had eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons. And Trump was basically saying, let's have a new arms race. He also increased uh, U.S. weaponry to uh, Ukraine, but at least he's saying it now. And contrast that with the, with the message from Democrats. I want to show you a tweet from Chris Murphy, the senator of Connecticut, responding to news that Kevin McCarthy, the House Majority Leader, or the House Leader uh, for Republicans, um, is saying that if Republicans take the House come November, then they might cut off U.S. military aid to Ukraine. And this is Chris Murphy's response to that. So Chris Murphy just says, told you as if it would be a bad thing if the U.S. stops sending billions of dollars worth of weapons to Ukraine. So what is your response to that, seeing the right seize the anti-war rhetoric at this current moment from, from Democrats who are voting in lockstep to fund the war? I think it's so important to recognize that uh, Donald Trump is using his rallies as well as what access to social media he has to get this message across that there needs to be a negotiated settlement, otherwise there will be uh, perhaps no life on this planet. And putting himself forward as a negotiator, saying that were he president, he would be talking to uh, the uh, leaders, he would be talking to Putin, and this is what Biden refuses to do. Donald Trump is a smart man. He puts his finger up and he sees which way the wind is blowing. He knows that the number one, two, three issues for the American people are the economy, 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 inflation. And he knows that this issue is connected to that. And more and more people are starting to realize that this is connected. When those 57 members of the Republican Party voted against the $40 billion, some of them said they did so because they were hearing from their base. So this is an issue that is affecting working people throughout this country, is going to get worse as winter sets in. And uh, Donald Trump is recognizing uh, that this is uh, a message that will resonate with his base. So I think it's important that he is calling out Biden for not negotiating. Uh, on the contrary, when you hear the response from Democrats, uh, I think they're missing the boat. I think this issue will come back to bite them. It might not be so soon as the elections right now in November, uh, but it will hurt them as time goes on. And if the war, this war keeps dragging out until the presidential elections, uh, which is a real possibility, uh, this could certainly make the difference between them winning or losing, because we know that Donald Trump in the past, the last election, he campaigned as a somebody who would get us out of the wars. And when there was analysis done of some key states, uh, was uh, in some studies attributed to that anti-war message. So I think the Democrats better start coming out and recognizing where the American people are moving on this issue, despite the propaganda in the mainstream media that has made people feel that this war is somehow in their interest. There are people who are probably going to watch this and clip this and show you saying that Trump is a smart man and try to pretend that you are a Trump supporter. 
because I think some people on the left are actually incapable of uh, separating the message from the messenger. So in other words, if p crazy right wing people are saying the war is bad, then they must be wrong and this war must be good. What do you have to say to those people? I think that they should recognize that Trump is a master manipulator. And the fact that he recognizes that this is an issue that will resonate with people should be something that the Democrats start paying attention to. I've been going around the country and having talks and uh, I am getting people who are uh, libertarians, Democrats, socialists, uh, Trump supporters, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters asking where Bernie Sanders is on this issue. I'm getting all kinds of people. And so I recognize this issue goes beyond ideology. This is an issue that smart people know that a nuclear war would be the end of life on this planet. And so we better do something about it. So this really transcends ideology. Speaking of the difference between Biden and Trump, here is an excerpt of Biden being interviewed by Jake Tapper. On Tuesday night, President Biden was interviewed by Jake Tapper on CNN. Would you be willing to meet with him at the G20? Look, I have no intention of meeting with him. But uh, for example, if he came to me at the G20 and said, I want to talk about the release of Griner, I'd meet with him. I mean, it would depend. But I, I, I can't imagine. Look, we've taken a position. I just did a G7 meeting this morning. The idea, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So I'm not about to, nor is anyone else, prepared to negotiate with Russia about them staying in Ukraine, keeping any part of Ukraine, et cetera. So what are your thoughts on that? Biden makes it very clear he will negotiate for the release of one American, but he's not going to negotiate for an end to this war. So I think he is the incredibly irresponsible for not negotiating. And I think that um, as this war drags on more and more, and it hurts the global economy, because let's recognize this is not a war that is just involving Ukraine and Russia. This is a war that has reverberations uh, all over the world and is changing geopolitics all over the world. He better get a clue and he better get some better advisors than the ones who are advising him now. It's also so obviously dishonest because he's trying to pretend that he's trying to center Ukrainian, you know, autonomy and self-determination and sovereignty, where we know from what you've said and others have said that he himself has sabotaged any attempt by Ukraine and Russia to, to negotiate this war's end. Well, and let's be clear what negotiations means because there are two wars going on. There's an, uh, a war where the US, where the Russia is the aggressor going into a civil war inside Ukraine. And there's a geopolitical war in which the US is the aggressor. And so when you talk about peace talks, there have to be talks between Ukraine and Russia, but there also have to be talks between the United States and Russia. Ukraine is not able to negotiate the US lifting sanctions on Russia. That has to be done by the US. Ukraine cannot negotiate uh, arms treaties. Uh, that has to be done by the US. So there are several levels of negotiations that have to go on. I wanted to also ask you about this protest against AOC that's gone pretty viral. And I want to know your thoughts on this and the fact that the people who are doing this are not leftists. They don't identify as leftists. In fact, one of them, 
uh, identifies as a LaRouche fan, a LaRouche supporter. So let's watch this and then I want to ask your thoughts on it. None of this matters unless there's a nuclear war, which you voted to send arms and weapons to Ukraine. Tulsi Gabbard, she's left the Democratic Party because there are fucking war hawks, okay? You originally voted, you ran as an outsider, yet you've been voting to start this war in Ukraine. You're voting to start a third nuclear war with Russia and China. Why are you playing with the lives of American citizens? You're playing with our lives. There will be no neighbors if there's a nuclear bomb. You voted to mobilize and send money to Ukrainian Nazis. You're a coward. You're a progressive socialist. Where are you against the war mobilization? He's telling the right truth. You have done nothing. Tulsi Gabbard has shown guts where you've shown cowardice. I believed in you and you became the very thing you sought to fight against. That's what you've become. You are the establishment and you are the reason why everybody will end up in a nuclear war unless you choose to stand up right now and denounce the Democratic Party. Will you do that? Yes or no? Okay, simple. Are you going to stop nuclear war? Yes or no? There is no line because this is bullshit. None of this matters if we're all dead. None of it. You know that. Then let's take it up right now because this is the only thing that matters. This is the only thing that matters right now. We could be in a nuclear war at any minute and you continue to fund it. That's what's going on. Why not right now? You're the liar here. Nobody has hold you accountable. That's what's happening. And it is time for you to stand up and realize that what you've been saying has been lies. Let your conscience come through for once. So what are your thoughts on that intervention? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Wow. Such an important voice, Medea Benjamins. I admire Medea a lot. She has done so many brave things. I mean, I mentioned the one where she goes, there's this uh, video where Donald Rumsfeld is walking into some fancy dinner and Medea is there to greet him and says, here comes the war criminal in front of a packed room of people and follows him and goes through the litany of crimes that Rumsfeld committed. And she's done that many, many times on all different sorts of issues, protesting wars and sanctions. And her energy and courage is really inspiring. And uh, now she's bringing it to this current proxy war. And it's much appreciated because it's groups like Code Pink that are really keeping what's left of the anti-war movement in the U.S. alive. And you'll get very cool parts of this interview that are Substack only, including Medea Benjamin talking about her thoughts on AOC and the protests. If you go to usefulidiots.substack.com. And yeah. we'll see you next time. Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 